0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pull Quotes. I'm your host and editor, Ashley Fraser. And I'm your producer, Tanya Sarek. When you're on transit, what do you see? Some people, yes, they're on their phones. But what happens when service cuts out? What do you do? For many, you might have turned to a Star Metro newspaper. They're in Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, Halifax, and Toronto. But as of last week, circulation of Star Metro ceased when 121 employees were laid off.
1: This staff reduction followed the Torstar's major national expansion and rebranding of its commuter newspapers in April 2018, which included changing the name from Metro to Star Metro and hiring 20
0: new reporters in five of Canada's largest cities. This felt like a major blow to journalism in Canada. Taryn Grant, a reporter for the Star Metro in Halifax, was the first to break the news on Twitter. She said, a fairly unsurprising turn of events, the Toronto Star is shutting down the Star Metro newspapers across the country, which means I and all my colleagues in brackets will soon be out of a job. Last print edition coming December 20th. So we're going to unpack that today.
1: And now we're joined by Hannah Alberga. She is a web editor here at the Ryerson Review of Journalism, and she was quick to cover this story as soon as the news hit. Welcome, Hannah.
2: Hi. Hi. So Hannah, walk us through what happened last Tuesday. I opened Twitter and the news just hit. Every single person was commenting on Taryn's tweet, which I think broke the news. And it was clear that something big happened. Like you said, all the newsrooms are going to close on December 20th. And originally... The numbers that um, Toronto Star was projecting was that 73 employees were laid off, but then Unifor published a letter saying it was actually 121 employees that were laid off in total in Vancouver, Calgary, Halifax, Edmonton, and Toronto. And... This is actually even bigger than just Star Metro. It was also um, some of their smaller newsrooms in um, southern Ontario, like um, the Waterloo Record. So this was really, really big news, and it hit the Canadian media landscape hard. Mm
0: -hmm. And how did employees at Star Metro find out about this?
2: So I spoke to Taryn Grant the following day. And so on Tuesday around 12.30 p.m., Star Metro employees got an email that said they were going to have a staff meeting that afternoon and by 4 p.m in the Halifax newsroom all of the employees received layoff notices so that's three journalists and one editor. They actually um, brought in uh, human resource employees from Toronto to give this news and it was a huge blow to the newsroom and later obviously they found out that this happened in all of the regional bureaus. So, so Taryn actually got the email when she was reporting a couple hours outside of the city. So she was in the car when during the, their meeting, which she actually was really happy about because she didn't have to like physically react to it the way mm-hmm. that her colleagues had to. And she got back to the office, sat down with a human resources employee, and everything just happened really, really fast she had to still, like, file a story that night because they're working until December 20th, right? Mm -hmm. So they're they're still reporting, and she said they're all still determined to, like, be doing their best work. And as it happens, her story that day that she was working on was printed on A2 of the Toronto Star. Mm -hmm. So there's clearly a lot of value to these journalists' work, Mm -hmm. and that was carried out by every single person that I spoke to for this story. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
1: And now this came as such a shock for Canadian journalism, especially after the newspaper was only just rebranded to Star Metro last year. What happened?
2: So a couple of years ago, they rebranded from Metro to Star Metro, and they actually laid off 20 people in Toronto, and they opened these regional bureaus in Vancouver, in Calgary, um, in Edmonton. They hired 20, like, mostly really young people um, to move out. And um, I was speaking to um, Emma McIntosh, who's was one of those people. She moved out to Calgary. The way she described the newsroom was how, like, I perceive people used to describe newsrooms. It was like, you move outside of the, the urban centers, and you get so much experience, and you get to really, like, be on the ground reporting, and, like, that just doesn't happen as much anymore. Even if you move, like, very far away from urban centers, like, they have very few employees now and it's unlikely that it's going to be a young person that's going to take that role. That was the conception of these newsrooms. There's so much hope in these newsrooms especially for the the young people that were populating them and you could really tell that in the way that they they describe it now.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So can you walk us through who was let go and has anybody
2: been hired? So... Everybody from Star Metro was let go. All of the physical papers will be discontinued and they're going to open what they call digital bureaus, which will actually just be published in the Toronto Star. And there's going to be 11 new jobs um, under this digital bureau. So that's going to be one um, reporter in Halifax, five in Alberta and five in Vancouver. And also these jobs are opened up to anyone. Absolutely anyone can apply to these jobs. So, Taryn actually described this like the Hunger Games. We're
1: kind of in a Hunger Games situation, Um,
2: and (laughs) we'll have to wait and see sort of what that becomes. If people want to continue working in the city, which a lot of people moved to be working in these places and don't really want to uproot their lives again, they have to fight for these jobs. We can
0: go back a little bit to when you spoke to Emma McIntosh. She moved to Calgary. She was trying to find a job. Like, did she talk about what the future holds down for her?
2: Yeah, so Emma was, like, such a... She's such a case study of exactly what, like, the hope of these newsrooms were. And, yeah, so like you said, she moved out to Calgary um, in 2018. And she... Originally, didn't really want to move because her whole family is, is here. Um, but, you know, she she knew that it was the right thing to do because there was opportunity and there was an opening at the newsroom in Calgary. And really soon after, she just, like, absolutely loved working in this newsroom because everyone was completely on the same page. They worked really hard. And she just kept saying, like, they were just figuring it out together and you're doing the damn thing. Like, thing. They just were being journalist and right off the bat before the launch even happened, she was in Saskatchewan um, reporting on the Humboldt bus crash. And she was with veteran reporters, she's with Ian Hannah Manson, like mm-hmm. New York Times reporters. Like this encapsulated a lot of the opportunity that these newsrooms offered. Now um, actually in May I'm I moved back to Toronto to work at the National Observer. She still thinks a lot about that newsroom. And she always says, like, if she could bring that newsroom to Toronto, where her home is, like, that would be the ideal situation. Oh, man. Like,
1: I, I, always look at, <laughs> I always would say, like, oh, man, if only I could, like, get all of them to work in Toronto so that I could, like, have the best of both worlds. <laughs> it's, it's hard, man. Like, every, every young reporter has to relocate at some point to another city, um, get a chance to do some stuff you would get to do in Toronto, and... Uh, so was like the best place to to do that.
2: A lot of people do say that there was writing on the wall. Toronto Star has opened and closed newsrooms twice in the past mm-hmm. couple years, so it's not earth. It's not shattering news because there's been so much fluctuation, but it doesn't make it any less devastating.
0: I know you also spoke to Vicky Machama, um, who worked at Metro before it rebranded. Another one of those employees that left before this happened. What did she say?
2: Yeah, so Vicky was speaking a lot about how readers are going to be impacted by this. She was saying to me that she would receive comments from people that read the Metro on a regular basis saying that they were learning English from the paper, saying that they were older people who felt isolated, and the paper kind of made them understand their community better. And that's like what the big loss of this paper is, is that we know that there's like very few community-oriented really papers, and the Star is a much bigger... It's a legacy paper. Exactly. Yeah. And although these were under the name, they still had that community reach. Mm. And I think that that's a big difference here that needs to be emphasized because the digital bureaus are going to be under the star name and that's going to change that community feeling.
1: Yeah. And what does this recent loss in Canadian journalism say about the journalism landscape?
2: I've been thinking a lot about this. Because there's a few different narratives that are going on in the journalism landscape. There's the one that journalism is on the demise and print is dying, which I don't necessarily believe to be the full and absolute truth. I think that there's mismanagement and that... I think when traditional legacy media assimilates digital bureaus that are actually kind of like doing their own thing and really being able to engage with an audience. And then they assimilate them into their bigger brand. They lack they lack that agency that they once had when they mm-hmm. were just sort of like a counterpart. Um, and I think that 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 is a problem that needs to be acknowledged because it's making it challenging for legacy media organizations to actually be able to to pivot towards digital because if we're still holding on really tight to our roots Mm -hmm. and we're not actually engaging in what's going on like within the digital sphere that's a problem because it's 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 taking away from what a lot of young journalists can do and it's making it challenging to actually move forward in these transitions because they're they're not actually moving forward. They're trying to stay. They're trying to stay where they are and mm-hmm. still make money in the same way that they used to.
0: Yeah, and and on that note, um, there was a recent article in the conversation by Sabrina Wilkinson, and uh, she wrote a piece titled "Canadian Journalism in Decline: Fewer Permanent Jobs, Less Security." Um, so we actually spoke to her earlier, um, and here's what she had to say.
3: The focus of that research was broadly, you know, what is the, the state of journalism in Canada? And in particular, uh, what's the situation with respect to journalistic labor or journalistic work? Uh, contrary to a lot of the public rhetoric in Canada around uh, this topic, the Labour Force Survey actually suggests that there are uh, slightly more journalists employed in absolute terms uh, in Canada. Like there's been a slight increase in, over the past 30 years. But although you know the the survey does suggest there's been um, a slight increase in numbers in absolute terms, uh, they also really do show that the nature of journalistic work has changed and become uh, much more precarious. So there are many, many more journalists working uh, in impermanent roles, in contract, temporary roles, as well as uh, in freelance positions as well. There also is the possibility that when you know survey respondents are responding to the labor force survey, that they may be identifying themselves as journalists when they are in roles that would not traditionally or not, you know, 20 years ago, be considered or even, you know, be be considered journalism or actually even be a job at that time. So, for instance, uh, there's the possibility that, uh, let's say, individuals who work at uh, news outlets in like social media management, may um, be self-identifying as journalists and this could be another reason or another kind of rationale behind this this increase in numbers.
0: Hannah uh, after hearing that talking about you know journalists maybe identifying uh, jobs in social media or working for a media company and taking on advertising or um, taking on maybe a more digital role what did you think about what Sabuna had to say there?
2: So it's really interesting, her work, because she identifies that in, um, there's a rise of temporary employment in journalism. And this is actually one of the narratives that I was speaking about that contrasts like, the mainstream demise of news, because her work finds that there's more temporary journalists, but we need to understand what that means, because it means that there's more precarity in journalism, mm-hmm because it's contracted work, it's freelance, it's casual. It means that there's an end date that you can that you can foresee in your in your employment. I think that this is really important to emphasize because just because you're working for a digital first publication doesn't mean that that's any less precarious or any less temporary. We know this because of the Vice and BuzzFeed unions that have launched in the past few years. And the problem is that if we believe the narrative that journalism is on the demise, we allow employment to take advantage of our of our status um, and make it more temporary because we believe that the publications don't have enough money to give us right now, but soon they will. And there's always this promise that it'll be coming soon and we'll have security soon. But unless... There's a bargaining agreement. There's no, there's no promise that that, that that will happen. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're seeing such an influx of newsrooms um, unionizing because we're realizing that we're on our own here. Mm-hmm. We are on our own as journalists. And the more we come together, like the less precarious it can be. So, for example, journalists are launching things like income transparency hashtag. So speaking about how much money we make. That's happening because employers are putting in contracts, don't share how much money you make, but that only benefits them, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you're in a digital first publication. It doesn't matter if you're in social media or if you're working at a legacy publication because... Everything comes down to the same thing that we need to look out for each other now. And that's what journalists are realizing. And I think this is really important in the continuing what Sabrina's work is is looking towards. Because if there's a rise in temporary employment, we need to be able to make that sustainable. Because nobody's making it sustainable for us.
0: Yeah. And actually, that really reminds me of last week when we spoke to Vicky Machama on the podcast. She told us, you know, as students, when we're taught in class about writing a story or making a video our teachers should be able to tell us like how much this would be worth in the Mm -hmm. real world but i i think they wouldn't say that because we don't know Mm -hmm. we don't know how much all of these things are worth we hear grumblings that some newspapers pay a dollar per word for freelance some pay less than that that's in the high range for the most part it's there's so many uncertainties for this particular industry whereas if you go into business if you go into the sciences there's usually like a standard level based on your qualifications that you might get paid right
2: yeah so um i've been doing a lot of research about this because i'm really interested in as we launch into our own careers being educated about the precarity of journalism is really important and I really feel adamant about journalists being educated about this before they go into the, like Vicky said, before we go into the workforce or before you start freelancing even on your own time because it's been explained to me by people that have devoted their entire careers to researching labor and journalism in that em- employers are always going to try and pay you the least amount possible. That's not, that's not just in journalism. That is just a fact. Mm-hmm. And... If we're not educated on how much our co-workers are making, then we are not able to actually advocate for ourselves. One of the really interesting things is there's a crowdsourced um, website right now. And also there was a, a spreadsheet going around a few weeks ago where journalists are just anonymously writing how much they get paid per word. And this, w- I started right away looking, looking up the publications that I've written for. Because we're the ones that are going to get the short end of the stick here, obviously. And if there's a way that you can prevent that early on, then employers are going to treat you differently because they know that you're coming in equipped with that information. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, that should be... a core part of j school now mm-hmm. in addition to like how to make a living off of freelancing because we know that this is the reality of the state of the industry that we're in and it doesn't make us love it any less we just need to figure out how to make it sustainable yeah and i think that if we're more realistic with ourselves then we're able to actually move into the workforce in a much more equitable way sorry I just feel a bit like even emotional talking about this because yeah. it's it's such a question mark I know mm-hmm. and I think
0: you're you're I can see the anxiety and I'm feeling the anxiety yeah <laughs> sitting here
2: but i think it's so important for us to talk about this and i think they should start talking about this in your first day of j school yeah because every person i've spoken to for my research we are in love with journalism we are here for a reason it's 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 a bit different than other careers because it's like romantic your relationship with it yeah and anyone that sticks it out is is of that romance and when I've spoken to people that have gotten laid off, it's like a breakup. Like it's devastating. And I know that that is I'm going to face that. But I think being able to know that, maybe I'll know that I'm not alone. Yeah. And maybe I'll know that we are all feeling this way. And a lot of the a lot of this solidarity is is going to be super important moving forward actually management and it's actually huge huge decisions that are being made in the industry we need to know that because it's not us and it's not our work and I think that that's really important yeah Mm -hmm. exactly
0: and I think we're just at such a interesting time where we we know that everything's going digital first we've been and we're still grappling with that and we're just at this very critical stage right now where people are starting to make those jumps and it is it is unsure so thank you so much Hannah for sharing all this um and uh I think really giving us a lot of research points there about what the landscape really looks like so uh thank you so much
2: no problem and there'll be a written version of that in the Yes, spring RJ yeah so uh,
0: yes on that note the RRJ will be we're all working on our primary projects that will be in our magazine in the spring and Hannah is writing about precariousness in the workplace of journalism so uh, we're looking forward to reading that but that's it for our show but do let us know your thoughts on Star Metro Cuts on Twitter at Ryerson Review and on Instagram at the Ryerson Review
1: our podcast was produced by myself Tanya Sarek and our editor Ashley Fraser special thanks to Technical Health help from Angela Glover and Lindsay Hanna. And thanks to our guests this week, Hannah Elberga and Sabrina Wilkinson. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata.
0: If you liked our show today, be sure to subscribe. We'll see you next time for our final episode of the year.